0: Welcome to The Independent Entrepreneur, available online at www.indybizshow.com. My name is Sean Salisbury, and today we're talking with Joade Bazier, president of Forethought.net, an internet service provider, telecommunications, and web hosting company based in Denver, Colorado. Joade started his company just at the dawn of the internet in his basement apartment and has seen a lot of changes in his rapidly changing business in the over 15 years at the helm of his company. Jouade discusses with us the value of being open and honest with one's customers, even if it may make your company look bad, and why he always pays attention to the facts on the ground. And with that, we turn to Jouade Baziar, who's joining us today via Skype from Denver, Colorado. Joade, we start with the same question we ask all our guests, which is, what was your first meaningful job, and how would it influence your future career?
1: The first one that comes to mind is I I worked for a company here in Colorado called Sequential Systems, and they were a computer peripherals company. They did printer interfaces and networking adapters for Apple computers uh, back starting in the 80s and through the early 90s. And that was, the, that was my first real job in my chosen field, computers. Prior to that, I'd done any number of, you know, need a job, take anything you can get type, type positions. And they all taught me something, but this was, this was probably key because it was entrepreneurial and it was a small company, so I had a lot of responsibility. For many different uh, different areas of of the operation of the company.
0: So let's fast forward a bit to Forethought.net. I I know you've been in the Internet business for more than 15 years, and and a lot has changed, I'm sure, for your company, uh, and obviously on the Internet over that time. But but tell us about the starting of Forethought. Uh, How did you decide to go into business for yourself? What was the initial idea for the company? Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us about that.
1: So my original impetus for starting this company was in 1994, well, I, I, sh- I should take a step back. In the college, uh, the late '80s uh, through '91, I was an avid internet user. Now, the internet at the time was text, certain collection of text-based applications. There were no web browsers. There were no. You know, there was no video. There was no Skype. None of that existed. It was just, you know, uh, text-based email and text-based bulletin boards. And file transfers, you know, like FTP sites, uh, were very, a very exciting innovation when I was in college. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was 1994, and I got my hands on an early copy of uh, NCSA Mosaic, I believe it which was the first graphical web browser. Okay, And I'm sitting here playing with this thing on my Linux PC at home and I'm just stunned because my mind is racing. I see this this, this technology and I see this capability and my mind immediately starts thinking through all of the possible applications of this. And that was really the beginning of, of Forethought. Originally, my vision was a company that would help businesses create a sales and marketing presence on the internet, up to and including actual electronic commerce, mm-hmm. putting products online, being able to purchase them over the net. Uh, we were a little early, uh, my partner and I, uh, in 1994. Uh, we contacted many companies, and the response for most of them was, what's the internet?
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: Right. And, and, you know, in hindsight, it's it's all pretty funny, because you know even just a couple of years after that that you know no everyone knew what the internet was and uh, everyone was racing to do what we uh, what we had intended to do but that was that was the beginning it was really just an idea and a possible new world that was opened up by this uh, seemingly innocuous technology
0: at what point did you start to turn profitable and you found yourself a viable market tell us about sort of that you know that that discovery and, and that realization
1: well, if by profitable, uh, you mean we were uh, paying our living expenses, then that was relatively quickly for sufficiently small living expenses. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, my uh, cost of living was pretty low, living in a basement apartment, and uh, you know, I didn't have a car payment or any of that stuff. So it was really kind of a, a big risk for me. I threw myself into it. We were lucky enough to get a... Uh, an early initial large web hosting client, and and really just kind of took off from there. And I I adjusted my life and my lifestyle around you know the the, the kind of money we were able to make from uh, from the business. And I never thought of doing it otherwise. For me, the first priority was the business and building the business. And you know my needs weren't that that great, so I just put all that other stuff aside. I you know I didn't travel, I didn't. Uh, I didn't buy stacks of CDs. I didn't you know, <laughs> do, do any of these things that, uh, that I do today just because the business was first.
0: You said that your first client was uh, someone who was hosting a website or whatnot. Was it right. your intent? You said that you were also interested in potentially doing um, a number of other services and whatnot on the web. Was your business initially just a hosting company? Did you also do some of those other things? And, and tell us about growing that over time
1: yeah so it was uh, originally like our first customers were in the hosting space but we also did application development web page design
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, things like that uh, we did a lot of consulting and custom programming type work on a consulting basis to you know to generate uh, revenue and to kind of kickstart things because it takes um, it, it can take a while to build up a customer base and start getting uh, the word-of mouth sales engine going and that actually is still how we're generating most of our business today. In those days, I was pretty focused on electronic commerce and facilitating over-the-Internet transactions and doing business over the Internet. And we stayed pretty pretty true to that um, for a long time. Now, hosting uh, was was an integral part of that, but it was pretty quick, say, by 97, 98, we would built up a, a decent little customer base here in, in Denver. We had customers from all over the, the country and all over the world, since web hosting is not geographically based. But we did have, just because of our presence here, we had a, a number of local customers. And they started asking us if we could provide them Internet access services. And that was sort of the beginning of my indoctrination in telecom. And the, the the telecom maxim, which is that people tend to want to use one vendor for as many services as they can as they can get. So that you know, we started with you know, basic dial up internet access, and then we did DSL, and then T1, and then we added VoIP, and now we're putting uh, some of our own fiber into office buildings. So it just continues to snowball.
0: So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, it, it sounds like your business has changed uh, a lot over the years, from web hosting to becoming a, an ISP in, in Colorado. Tell us about that the sort of the, the discovery process, um, how you were listening to your customers and and you know you, you said that your customers want to buy as much from one person as possible. How'd you go about finding that out for for about your customer base and that kind of thing?
1: They called us and and told us that they wanted us to be their ISP. <laughs> <laughs> At the very beginning, we started getting more and more phone calls from folks who, you know, they it, it, the options in those days weren't that great. There weren't that many ISPs. Some of them were very expensive, particularly the local ones. But that's basically it. I mean, they'll call us up and tell us. We we my philosophy towards customer management is is to have long term personal relationships with our customers. That means a lot of communication. It means that we're we're constantly trying to get in front of them to to learn more about what their needs are. Uh, because their needs change over time, particularly in a business like ours where the technology changes so rapidly. We are constantly having to adjust to that. And that's really been the thing that's driven the changes in the business. It has been changes in technology and changes in customer needs. The direction is, is always pointing to you know more bandwidth, Bigger websites, more IT and, and technology, and for us as an independent company to keep up with that is very challenging sometimes.
0: Yeah, and and you're, I mean, you exist in a face of, uh, you know, these obviously now all of us and most of us get of our uh, outside of, uh, you know, areas maybe like Denver or, or whatnot get our internet access from the cable company or from the telephone company. A, a lot, there's been a lot of consolidation. You've managed to survive through all of that. Is there something unique about Colorado that makes that possible? Is there something unique, unique about the way that you do business that, that uh, has allowed you to survive in this, this kind of uh, fast-changing market?
1: No, actually, there's nothing unique about Colorado. In fact, um, Colorado, Denver in particular, is probably one of the most intensely competitive markets for telecommunications wow. in the country. Not only are many of the large nationwide telecoms based here, Level 3, Quest, Zayo. Uh, back in the heyday, um, several of the competitive DSL companies were all based here. Several cable companies are based here, even though they don't provide services here. <laughs> I, I think at one count there were 15 actual major competitors here in the Denver Metro area. But we're not unique, aside from, from that scale. Every major city in the country has companies like us, and many rural areas do as well. Our strategy has been to focus on that relationship. There is a segment of the buying public, particularly small and medium enterprise, who are not well served by the big companies and the big company cookie-cutter solutions. A Comcast will never meet the needs of the Tattered Cover Bookstores, which are a, a local bookstore chain, high-profile, well-known in Denver. Outside of Denver, nobody knows who they are, but inside Denver, you know they're an institution. And we, and they have needs uh, more like big companies. But, and a Comcast is never going to come in and help them unravel how to tie their, their multiple stores together and, and provide integrated VoIP across all of their sites. That's where we've focused, uh, the, particularly the past five years. And that's where we've really uh, gotten a lot of traction, is being flexible enough to take the tools at our disposal in terms of the services we have and our and our technical capabilities, and being able to help our customers craft a solution that works for them and solves their problems, a lot of telecom companies come in, particularly the bigger ones. They get an army of salespeople, and they they knock on the door and they say, "Hey, I can sell you a T1 and eight phone lines. If that works for you, then great, sign here." And you know, in, I've been to meetings with some of these guys before, and. And if you start asking them anything at all technical or anything at all about their specific, their their customer specific needs, you know, their eyes gloss over and it's all over.
0: And I have to get back to you on that kind of thing.
1: Right, right. And they they just don't, their model is not to do that. Their model is to get out there and sell a million widgets a day. And every widget is exactly the same. Right. And so there's always going to be room for companies like us in the marketplace. To serve that need for um, uh, that customers that have unique requirements
0: have. I see. Your customers basically are sort of small to medium sized businesses that have uh, unique telco needs or or internet connection needs, but might need a little bit of handholding along the way in terms of how to integrate that into their business.
1: Right. That's our. That's definitely our sweet spot. Um, we certainly have any number of, of customers who just need internet and and phone lines and for them maybe the deciding factor was they wanted to work with the local company having worked with some of the big national ones and not having had a good customer service experience um, they like the idea of being able to come down and meet us at our office or even just being able to sit face to face with with the executives sometimes it's just about price and we've structured our our services so that we can be very price competitive even against the big guys in fact, we probably have much lower overhead than many of the big companies. But it's really it's it's just about staying tuned into what your customers need and being tuned into where the marketplace is going, so that you can stay ahead of it. Back in 2006, for example, we were the second telco in Denver out of the 15 that I mentioned earlier to start deploying uh, what's called Ethernet over copper, and that is a Basically, it's a type of high-speed broadband internet access specifically designed for business applications. And, you know, in the years since, five years since, uh, a number of our local competitors have started providing that service. But we were first, and I was, and we were first because I was able to go in and see what, look at the, what the trends were and, um, and find technology that was going to meet those trends. Even back in those days, I knew that, you know, teleconferencing, video conferencing, remote access, telecommuting, all these were going to be big drivers in the business space. And that all pointed to the need for large bandwidth. And so the solution we created allows us to provide that in many places where the big competitor in our, our space for some of these things that you might think would be Comcast. They're actually not in a lot of business areas because they didn't originally build their network to deliver TV to office buildings. They built their network to deliver TV to homes. And so they've been aggressively building, but they're still... You know, in downtown Denver, for instance, uh, they're only in a small fraction of the buildings. Our solution allows us to deliver the, the kinds of services customers need in the footprint where, where they need it.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. So tell us, um, you know, how big is, is Forethought now? What can you tell us about the size of your company and, you know, maybe in terms of how many employees you have or anything that you're you're willing to share in that area?
1: Sure. sure. We're... Um, uh, I think we're currently about 12 full-time employees and then we have a small army of subcontractors who do a lot of the kind of the day-to-day cabling and on-site work for us. We are going to be at about 3 million in revenue this year. Great. On an annualized basis and we've been growing on average between anywhere between 15 and 30% a year for the past past 5 years.
0: So you've basically been growing your company over these years. It sounds like, you know, you've sort of been slowly growing. it, sort of the brick and mortar style uh, kind of way. Can you tell us about your philosophy about growing your business? I mean, a lot of people, you know, starting off back when you did, they were shooting for having a huge kind of company. Tell us why you've decided to have your company stay, you know, the size that it is and, and that kind of thing.
1: Well, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a choice exactly. I would love to grow uh, substantially faster than we are. There are challenges unique to our industry. Telecommunications is very capital intensive, particularly the way that we are deploying our services. To open up service in a new area of town can cost anywhere from twenty to $50,000. So really, for us, it's been mostly a matter of limitations on capital availability. That being said, I also had the example of the dot-com era and many, many companies raising hundreds of millions to billions of dollars right, and then being bankrupt and out of business within a year two years. And so I knew that it's conceivable to go out and raise that kind of money to grow really fast. That kind of money often comes with a price attached, which is that the investors want a return within a certain time frame. And sometimes it's not a realistic thing to do. For me, I, I base business decisions on my personal value judgments. If I don't think something makes sense, it's certainly not going to make sense to you know, spend a billion dollars trying to do it. I always approach things from the perspective of I'm the end user, I'm the consumer. Why would I pay money for this? Why would I be interested in this? And then I start thinking, okay, well, let's say I, I am a consumer. This, this would be interesting to me. How, how do you actually do something? How do you actually provide this service? How do you actually make it happen? And so I, I guess I just have an analytical brain. And so no matter what it is, if I'm reading about Webvan, for instance, and I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> okay. So they're going to make like a couple of bucks per delivery and gas costs this much and the vans cost this much. And how are they going to make money? And I don't even have to think about some of these things very long before it's like, okay, cross that one off the list. That's not going to fly. I basically, I give it a reality test. And I knew that there was so much stuff going on in, in, in those days. And even today, you know, I occasionally will talk to people who are, who have some some grandiose idea and want us to be a part of it. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I don't I don't think that's that's based in reality. I just do that. And unfortunately, you know, ninety percent of the the types of things that go on out in the world, the, the types of deals that, that may float your way are you know nonsense. And you just have to be big enough to say that's the case and have to be very careful. Any potential deal is an investment of my time and my life, really, into uh, effectively somebody else's business if someone offers me money to something, so I jealously guard that.
0: You mentioned before that you started your business with a, a business partner. I'd like to kind of maybe dive into that a little bit. How do you manage your relationship w- with your business partner? Tell us about sort of that experience of going into business with with somebody, um, you know the advantages that it has, and some of the challenges that that, that it presents
1: so Partners are, uh, you know, employees present challenges, but partners have unique challenges because, well, they're they're owners, mm-hmm. and one of the things you have to do early early on is to establish clearly who who the leadership is. You can't, I suppose, you could have a sort of a democratic company, but most companies, particularly small ones, I think need to be need to be dictatorships. And you can you can have, you know, a scenario where you rotate them but you just can't have a bunch of people in a room all being the head of a company. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a clear, clear line of leadership. I, I see people run into problems with partners on a fairly regular basis. One of the issues I ran into with my original partner was at the end of the day it ended up that we had very different work ethics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, since then, I've I've brought in other partners, and they're um, I wouldn't say they're silent partners, uh, investors and board members. And having a one of the things I would recommend uh, would be having a formal structure of some sort where you can talk about things that concern your partners and or um, investors. Having a, a like a corporation with a board of directors structure is a great way to do that. And the relationship we've built is very collaborative. I'm still, I'm the day-to-day guy. I'm the, the leader. I set the vision. But they provide accountability. They can read the bottom line, and they, they manage the company on the basis of that. And then everything else is up to me to, to deliver that. So that's a great kind of working partnership.
0: You also mentioned uh, employees. I want to ask you about that. What's your philosophy when it comes to hiring uh, employees and finding good people? How do you find the right people to join your team? Oh, I wish I knew.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think my favorite way and the way that's always worked out best for me is hiring people that I already know really well. Maybe they're buddies of mine and they've been working in in other companies and an opportunity comes up. And the risk with uh, hiring somebody, just random people off the street of course, is that you can sound really good in an interview and then be completely worthless once you sit down at your desk. Sure. And the whole interview process is trying to weed out people like that, people who are good salesmen but not good employees. So aside from people I know, and unfortunately there's, there's not an infinite supply of those, I have had some success with... Um, the, the usual suspects, you know, basically over the we've used headhunters before. We've, you know, posted ads on Monster. Um, I've posted ads through LinkedIn. I would say that the LinkedIn approach, I, I got the absolute best quality of of candidates that I'd ever seen from any of the any of the things that we've done. And I think that's because the people you you connect with through LinkedIn are there's some reputation there. They're connected to people that you know. And, um, it's not just, you know, like the monster.com, you put the ad out there and get 5,000 resumes from random people. Uh, we're, we're going to be doing more of that.
0: Great. Great. So tell us a little bit then also about, you know, keeping the employees. Tell us about, uh, a little bit about sort of like what your corporate culture is like, so to speak. I know you've been in business a long time. Uh, right. So I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I know, uh, like Tony Shea in his book, Delivering Happiness talks a lot about a company's culture and whatnot. Do, does Forethought have a culture? Can you describe what it is? Is it something that you think explicitly about, or tell us about that?
1: Yeah, uh, no. Uh, well, yes, yes and no. Originally, the, the culture was me. I'm My personality <laughs> type is such that I have very high expectations of, of people, mm-hmm. and I tend to interact best with people who are, are similar to me, self-motivated, independent. I had to bring in a kind of operations manager at some point to help me interact well with all of the people who are not like me, and apparently that's um, most people. <laughs> the culture we try to to create is, is one of of motivation and independence. Uh, communication is something that we stress every day, not just among amongst ourselves, but with our customers. You know, being honest about you know if we have a problem a service problem or an outage we're we're scrupulously honest even if it makes us look bad that's just the type of relationships that i want to have both inside the company and with our customers we strive to have an open informal kind of atmosphere anyone whether it's a customer or an employee to be able to knock on my door or walk in and sit down and talk to me about something that's concerning them i don't separate myself from the crew i am one of them and i enjoy and try to work with them uh on a fairly regular basis to transmit skills but also just to you know just kind of be in the trenches with them i'm never afraid to do something that i'm asking them to do so if i'm asking them if i ask an employee to do a a 2 a.m hot cut at one of our uh, pop sites um, I'm just just as likely to be there right, right there with them
0: okay I don't know what a 2am hot cut is but it uh... oh, we have to do network work at, at 2 in the morning oh okay uh,
1: so it doesn't impact customers uh, no I don't I don't ask employees to do something I'm not willing to do myself I guess is what it comes down to
0: great great I've seen
1: you know a lack of communication from big companies and the way that big companies try to hide or color or spin things has always really disturbed me. The recent example with Citibank, not it, bothering to mention to people that 200,000 card members uh, in personal information have been stolen for a month uh, was really
0: disturbing. <laughs> sure, sure.
1: We just have a policy of full disclosure and, and open, honest communication. Mm-hmm. I guess.
0: No, that's great. And, and I'm sure that helps you a lot with your reputation, especially as, you, as, you're, as you're dealing face to face with a lot of uh, customers in the local area. Are you seeing that that creates a lot of customer loyalty?
1: Our customers love that. Whenever we send out one of those, you know, oops, boo-boo type, um, type emails, we get dozens of responses back saying, thank you for telling us that, you know, no one else we've ever worked with has ever bothered to tell us when there have been problems. Um, we really feel that you respect us, you know, that kind of thing.
0: I know you've been in business a long time. Tell us about some of the mistakes that you've made along the way. What would you say was your biggest mistake uh, and how did you recover from it and what did you learn?
1: Wow. Yeah. So, biggest mistake and our biggest success are kind of wrapped up in the same. <laughs> we, we, uh, we did a merger with the company uh, back in 2002. and. The mistake was being a little cavalier about all of the cultural clash issues. Mm-hmm. I knew that the cultures in the two companies were somewhat different, but the extent to which the other company's culture differed from, from mine was far beyond any expectation I could have had. And I think that was, that was mostly because I simply didn't pay enough attention to it. And it was a near catastrophe. We ended up having to fire basically all the two of the other company's staff. Wow! Because they were uncooperative, hostile, combative as their culture. Right. <laughs> and they would be. The, they were this way with customers. They were this way with vendors. They were this way with each other. It was. It was. It was a degenerate atmosphere. And if I were to do it again, I would. You know, try to be much more honest about it, learn more about it before we dove into it, but then take immediate steps to correct the situation from, from day one rather than kind of wait and deal ad hoc with each of the problems as they came up. The way, the way we ended up doing it that way, uh, it, the problems kind of dragged on and on, and it took a year really before we were at a point where we were ready to move forward again. At the same time, that deal got us our current investors and partners, and um, that aspect of it has been very beneficial. So it was, um, at the end of the day, even if we had kind of taken the bull by the horns and and started out with a plan to fix the culture from day one, we may yet have ended up firing all but two people. But it, it might have worked out better if I'd been more proactive about establishing what culture I wanted.
0: I see. Now, that's interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you basically merged your company with another that's, one. Mm-hmm. So what w- how did that come about? Tell us about uh, your thinking at the time in doing that. Were you looking to, to grow your customer base? What was the motivation to do that?
1: There were a couple of things. This was uh, right in the thick of the dot-com crash. The economy was tanking. A lot of our customers were going out of business, the marketplace in general was was pretty bad, and we made a decision, strategic decision, to find a merger partner to uh, give us a shot in the arm to grow rapidly, and to help us with some of the some of the financial challenges that we found ourselves in at that point. And so, in telecommunications, uh, t- typically a, a network uh, once you've built it can can scale pretty dramatically and so we we had identified a lot of savings that we could achieve through consolidation and none of that was was getting rid of people it was all you know uh... getting rid of redundant vendors and getting redundant office space and and things like that so at the end of the day you know we did achieve some of those savings and it worked out relatively well barring the 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 pretty big road bumps that we had in the in the culture but it was it was just one of those things where things were very tough, and we needed to get bigger to make things less tough. So, so we made that decision, and we we had talked to a couple of folks, but we ended up uh, merging with a uh, another ISP business that was just happened to be in our same office building. As the it's the best candidate.
0: So, if you had to name one or two things that that it explains how you've managed to survive all these years, especially in, in such a rapidly changing market that you're in. Uh, what would that be?
1: Always pay attention to the facts on the ground. Be paranoid about, you know, every time, every time I lose a customer, I, regardless of whether it's a, you know, a little $30 a month residential customer or a larger business customer, I have to know exactly why they canceled their service. Because if there's anything that we can do to make a customer happier or to keep that customer, it's it's much Cheaper to keep a customer than to go get a new one. That's you know that's probably an old saw, but it's especially true in, in telecom, where all of our capital costs tend to be focused on the turn up or the activation of a new customer, and uh, all of the profit comes from you know years two, three, four, and on uh, keeping that customer. Uh, and, and the challenge uh, the challenge is also then doing that to stay in tune with what the marketplace is doing. Because, you know, back in 2004, uh, a new competitor was really starting to make some headway in town, C-Beyond. And, you know, I kept track of every one of our losses. And one month we had one customer lost to C-Beyond. And then we had a couple lost to C-Beyond. And then we had four or five lost to C-Beyond. And pretty quickly we were able to determine that that was a trend and that these guys were, were gaining traction. And it's like, okay, so what are these guys doing? What are they doing that I'm not doing? What value are they offering to my customers that's causing my customers to leave us? That was integrated telephone and uh, high-speed Internet service. So that's uh, about a year, you know, a couple of years after we started seeing beyond really hit us hard, we got into the VoIP the business. And and these days, any given month, we take three or four major business accounts from beyond
0: <laughs> every month. So, no, and that goes back to what you're talking about in terms of really listening to the customer and seeing that, no, what they needed is this integrated, you know, internet and telephone together. Right. Great, great. So I know every, every business has a, a core set of metrics that they look at on a regular b- uh, basis to measure success. What kind of metrics are you looking at in your business?
1: We look at churn and we look at cash flow churn, of course, is the ratio of customer acquisitions to customer losses. And then bottom line at any business, it tends to be cash flow. So if we're making money and keeping our customers happy, uh, then we're doing a pretty good job.
0: What's one of the biggest lessons you've learned as an entrepreneur? And how are you applying that in, in what you're doing today?
1: Hmm. Stay focused. It's tough in our business because uh, there is that push to have us be the all-in-one provider. But even in doing that, we have to stay focused. Don't try to do too many things at the same time. Don't try to be all things to all people. And be willing to walk away from a deal if it's not a good fit. Nobody likes to say no. Salespeople in particular don't like to say no. But sometimes it's the best thing.
0: So what is uh, Forethought's long-term strategy and vision? Does your company have a mission statement?
1: Conquer the world. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, not officially, but I talk about it with people from from time to time. And what we're out to do is we're still in a a mode where we're growing our customer base and growing our cash flow. The long-term vision is to continue to add slices of Capabilities. So our next, um, the next thing we're getting into is cloud-based hosting. Working with local IT vendors, people who consult with small businesses to build and manage their their local area networks, and to provide hosted versions of many of these these services to to that segment. We think. Based on the, some of our market research, that there's at least four to five times the revenue per user in those services than there is in the telecom services we provide today. And so we're, we're actively putting infrastructure in place and starting to get out and market that. And then the other major initiative is fiber-based internet access. So we're lighting up uh, business parks with fiber, commercial office buildings in the downtown denver area with fiber all this copper stuff has really just been an intermediary or an intermediate step to getting to this Uh, everybody always knew that fiber was going to be the next thing but you know it's intensely expensive and so it's going to take a long time and there's going to be a lot of companies that do this part of town, this other company does this part of town, and someone's going to come in at some point and buy them all up and stitch them together, which is how the, the telephone companies that we know today got built. And it took a hundred years. It was a hundred years. It, there were places in Colorado that didn't have telephone service until the past five years. And it'll take, it'll take just as long I, I figure for um, fiber to be deployed ubiquitously throughout the united states maybe not quite that long but it's going to take it's going to take time there's a lot of lot of digging and a lot of hanging cable on poles and a lot of things to put on the sides of houses and in the basements of office buildings but anyway so that's we want we're starting to head in that direction so that we can be either uh, one of those companies that gets um, uh, bought up or is one of the companies that does the buying
0: do you have any particular preference in that regard or tell us about sort of your strategy there
1: I don't know. At some point, it's conceivable I'll get bored with what I'm doing. And at that point, uh, I would want to be one of these sellers. But as long as it stays interesting to me personally, and I feel that I'm being valuable and creating value for our shareholders and doing something that I can feel good about at the end of the day, I'll keep doing it. And down, as we keep going down the road, that involves me more and more doing more business development, and high-level strategic stuff, such as acquiring other companies.
0: Sure. So what makes it uh, interesting to you personally? What's really the driving force for you here in this business?
1: It's never the same from day to day. Every time we go meet with a new customer, there's some new challenge. There's some new, there's some new thing. If I was doing exactly the same thing every day, I, I would go nuts. <laughs> But even though we're we're doing kind of we're doing the same thing every day for the past several years, every application is different, and that's interesting.
0: Uh, you mentioned before one of the, the products that you're working on for the future is uh, you know a, a cloud-based kind of product. Obviously, a lot of a, a lot of people know about, for example, Amazon's cloud services and things like that. Tell us, you know, how is it? What you're doing? Uh, what's different about that? What's tell us about that a little bit?
1: Right. Well, in thinking about this. There were a couple of aspects to it. One, we're, we're putting all of our own existing legacy infrastructure into our cloud. We already reduced our power usage by 20% in our data center. And so from, from, from one standpoint, it's simply this is more efficient and more reliable and cheaper to run. So that's all well and good. But the perspective of then uh, delivering this to our customers, the fundamental equation is, what is our unique value proposition and how do we take that unique value proposition and apply it to this new area as i've discussed before our unique value proposition is in our local presence and the fact that we build long-term relationships and really work to understand the customers needs and put something together that is a solution for them and not just a not just a widget so in the, in, the, in the cloud computing space, that's working with local businesses. Instead of a local business hosting an email server themselves, we host their dedicated email server in our cloud, providing them with unique benefits and reliability and accessibility and working with their existing IT support vendors. We're not trying to take over being their computer guy. We want to provide their computer guy with better tools to help his customer, and so that's the approach we're taking. No, we're not trying to go head to head with Amazon. There's a <laughs> hundred companies out there who are doing exactly what Amazon's doing, and in the in the web hosting space, um, you know, back in the '90s and early 2000s, um, the same thing happened. It became commoditized very quickly. Uh, today, there's places that'll host your website for a dollar a month or less. And, of course, it's some guy with a cheap computer in his basement on a DSL line. But you don't know that. Right. <laughs> For us, it's it's building that trust. And we think in this particular space, no one's ever really made that much headway in this space, uh, in the small business, hosted small business infrastructure. And we think that's because there's a trust deficit. I, as a small business, would be hesitant to have Amazon host my business's File server because I don't know Amazon, and Amazon doesn't have a tech support phone number for this type of thing. a, a lot of these big internet companies now are going completely here's the product and uh, here's our web page with information about it, and you're on your own. have a nice day right they don't even post phone numbers anymore and for us that's completely the wrong saying the, the businesses that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, day-to-day basis would never in a million years trust their business's operations to a company that had a model.
0: Yeah, and, and, I, and I know from, you know, my experience in business, and especially, you know, when, when we ran Box Office Mojo, for example, we didn't really want to have to bother with the technical side of the hosting. We wanted to be focused on our publication and doing what our business was best at, which was publishing movie uh, box office information. And... While there's a certain technical aspect of that in terms of developing the website itself, even like the uh, other aspects of, you know, what kind of web server do you have and that kind of stuff, that would require additional, you know, resources to put into. So it's, it's great to be able to, like, outsource that to somebody like you who can take care of that for, for somebody like that. Right. A um, couple more questions here. So uh, let's jump back a little bit into, uh, you know, you're the president of Forethought. What does leadership mean to you?
1: Setting a vision for the company and helping show the staff a path
0: to get to the vision,
1: and making sure that they have the tools and the resources they need to um, to get there.
0: What advice can you offer to anyone who's thinking about starting their own business?
1: It's a unique thing. Being an entrepreneur requires so much of you. If you are a person who thinks that you're going to start a business because you're tired of working ten-hour days because you're tired of dealing with the customers because you're um, don't don't do it because don't do it for negative reasons and have reasonable expectations going into it. You are going to be working every waking minute. If you have a family relationship, make sure that they're solidly behind you because it is hard, it is brutal, it is a lot of work, and you need to make sure that you love what you're doing. Don't something just because you think you're going to make a lot of money at it. That's a bad reason to start a business. Uh, it's an okay reason to get a job with somebody. Starting a business is like like having a baby. It is a a tremendous investment of your time and your soul into creating an entity, you know, creating a an organization. And don't go into it half-heartedly. Don't uh, go into it expecting it's going to be easy. It's not.
0: Great, great. That's great advice.
1: I'll just throw one more thing in here. Yeah. Um Lots of people are concerned about you know, the, kind of the overall economy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that is something to be concerned about. But if you think you've got a, a market for what you want to provide, then you know, the economy being five or ten points down from a couple years ago doesn't really matter. If you've got something better, then people will buy it. People are probably actually more likely to buy it when times are tough because they're looking to optimize and save. I always have thought about recessions as opportunities for people. It's an opportunity to convince somebody that there's a different way of doing something that's better for them. When things are going well, you know, people businesses don't tend to think about it. They just go, oh, everything's fine. We'll just leave, it, leave things the way they are. When times get tough, you now have an opportunity to get people to do something in a new way and to get them to think outside the box. So don't be scared about what's going on out there right now. Look at it as a, uh, as a door, doorway.
0: No, that's, a, that's great advice uh, and a great point. So tell us uh, how people can find you and Forthought.net.
1: Well, we are at uh a uh, website on the Internet. And um, I have a blog that is linked to from our homepage. And my email address uh, can be uh, figured out pretty easily. It's joaid.bajar at Forethought.net.
0: Okay, great. <laughs> Thank, th- thanks a lot, Joade, for coming on and telling us about forthought.net and your experience in, in, in your business over the years. And we wish you a profitable future.
1: Thank you, Sean. Same to you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Independent Entrepreneur. The show's theme song, Tommy in the Morning, is by Pete Hutlinger and used with his permission. All other content on this show is copyright 2011 by Sean Salisbury. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. For more information and to listen to other interviews, please visit www.indybizshow.com. That's com.